traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, what makes language offensive? And to be honest, this week's show is going to be a bit sweary. Since the evolution of language, words have had the power to offend and shock us, and profanities do roll off the tongue with satisfying ease at times, even as they make us blush. Cursing is all part of the rich verbal fun of being human. And while we might sometimes think of our ancestors as pearl-clutching prudes, in an era of cancel culture and the reigning in of free speech, are we more easily offended than ever before? My guest this week is the linguist John McWhorter. He takes swearing seriously as Professor of English at Columbia University and as the host of the podcast Lexicon Valley for Slate. His new book is Nine Nasty Words and it explores the darker side of the dictionary and what causes a word to become unspeakable. John's also a frequent combatant in the present battles about free speech and vocal on the weakness, as he sees it, of hypersensitivity about race, speaking as an African-American. And also joining our conversation is Lane Green, who writes the Economist's language column, Johnson, and he's authored a book on the changing rules of language. Welcome to you both. Thank you, Anne. Good to be here. Hi, Anne. So, John, simple question... I'm going to keep it polite. Why do we use profanities at all? Well, profanity seems like it's words, and it is technically, but what it really is is words that are recruited into being emotional eruptions, emotional decoration. The right brain has more to do with them than the left brain. And so there's what I'm doing right now. That's vanilla language. Then there is profanity, and that is for what you could call language, but really what it's about is emotion. What it's about is transgression. You know, transgression is part of being human. The issue is just how a society contains it or deals with it or encourages it. And profanity is the linguistic aspect of how we transgress. Are there commonalities in what we consider a swear word across different languages? Definitely. And it's just what the society is, you could call it hung up on, although being hung up on something doesn't necessarily mean that a society shouldn't be hung up on it. And so very often profanity will be, depending on how the society works, about religion, about religious figures, about God. It's hardly uncommon for profanity to involve things having to do with the body. Because although we might think that there's something Western, possibly Western and Northern European, and then spreading out from there, about being hung up about, say, excrement, actually, that's a human universal. There are no people who are not turned off by excrement. That's everybody. And then today, we have an Anglophone culture, profanity being about slurs against groups. That is not universal. That is modern. That is a matter of intellectual and moral development. But the fact that we are now so careful about things like the N-word 
is evidence that what we have is not just some arbitrary pox on slurs against groups. It's our profanity. That's how language evolves. I'm going to come to language against groups and where there is a social or political context, as you indicate there, in just a moment. But I wanted to ask you both if you think that English is particularly profanity-laced. John, first. I think that some languages are less profane than others, and some language delineating the category of profanity is tough because there isn't much difference between just being a little emotional or salty and being profane. But there is, to my knowledge, no such thing as a language where there isn't a certain class of words that make some people go, <laughs> and to the extent that there are words where somebody will go, <laughs> or somebody will go, <laughs> that's it. There is some category of words that aren't just words, but they symbolize. But Lane, you, you know, people tell me that I know every language in the world, but compared to me, you really do. And you get to live in them, whereas I, I just sit in chairs. I don't know that English is more profane than others, but we can we can be offended by things that are pretty ordinary in other languages. I've been watching some Netflix in Spanish for a move to Spain that's coming up. They use lots of religious swear words in uh, Spanish. So they, lots of demonios and diablo and hostia, which is, uh, means the host, as in the, the consecrated wafer of Catholic Christianity. That can be used as a sort of sweary intensifier in, in Spanish. We wouldn't dream of swearing by things like that exactly. And the words like hell are pretty weakened by uh, changing mores, I guess, in the English-speaking world. But I think we are pretty hung up on the body parts and sex in particular. So there's a there's a particularly English character to what offends and, and what doesn't. And there's a French character and a Quebec character and lots of local differences. And that's what makes it such a fascinating subject. Can you think of, of phrases that have become or areas that have changed in terms as, as our views have changed in the Southern Europe there's often things around mothers, not calling out mothers, anything that's very offensive to do with prostitution sisters and mothers. So it should be less so in Northern Europe, where that's kind of not polite, but it's uh, less common. Why do we have these differences about what's a really bad word? Some of it is just cultural differences where you could just trace it to what the substrate of being a part of that group is. Some of it, though, is just chance. And so, for example, what I think a lot of people are thinking is that horrible word, although that's me as an American putting it that way, C-U-N-T, where it's a word that I have probably never used. I refer to it. I know what it is, but I have never fired off with it. I've never called someone it even when they weren't there. Whereas if I am where you are, one of the first things I have to get used to is how common that word is. And some people have asked me whether this means that the British are somehow more sexist than Americans. I think it's just because we're more Anglo-Saxon, Lane. I'm just going to bring Lane straight in on that. He's <laughs> lived around us. For a lot of people, that's still very offensive to, to use it, but it does have that good hard-edged Anglo-Saxon force to it, doesn't it? Which seems, it comes, shall we say, more easily to certain parts of my native Britain than it might in politer parts. Britain really does seem to prefer those nice, short, sharp ones. And I can think of a couple, including the one John just mentioned, that you hear more often here. But a big difference with that one is that here, that one's used more often in uh, being thrown at a at a man. So you call uh, a man a, a see you next Tuesday, if you like, and you're more likely to use that as a very nasty way to refer to a woman in the U.S. So there are these interesting regional differences. Americans get really creative. We, we, we kind of cram together lots of long words and, uh, and make uh, new swear words out of that. 
We think of 2021 maybe as being free from the constraints of the easily offended souls in parts of the past. The Victorians always get that bad rap in Britain for being so easily scared off by language. But at the same time, we're living in an era of so-called cancel culture, John. So are we perhaps a lot more sensitive than we think, or have we simply changed what we're sensitive about? Oh, we've changed what we're sensitive about. And even if you just limit it to language, honestly, I see no difference between the Victorians and how sensitive they were about saying anything that would refer to sex or excretion in the body, and how sensitive we have become about, for example, in America, the N-word. And, you know, I'm black myself, and I understand why that is a slur, why you have to be very careful with it. But there's been a heightened sensitivity with it that has become difficult to explain to children, even more difficult to explain to foreigners. The idea that you don't even utter any sequence of sounds or syllables that sounds anything like it, even if maybe it's in Chinese. You know, it really has gotten extreme to the point that yeah, you know, technically it's Edwardian, but for me, Victorian is always Mary Poppins. I feel like we are in that same world with different clothes and different hangups. It's the same thing, and that's because human beings continue being human. It's what the society is especially concerned about. Lane, isn't there a particular category here? And I see we've got right into it. I mean, we're straight into having the N-word in the discussion here. I mean, the fact that I have phrased it like that quite naturally shows that there's been a big shift around it. John seems to be saying, well, this is a, a sort of continuity. It's just that we've moved what we're sensitive about. But in this case, isn't there a reason that it is so avoided? Because it was used to oppress. And it, it, it's seen and sounds like a symbol of oppressing a certain group of people because of their race. Well, that's true. But that was true 20, 30, 40 years ago as well. I, when I grew up, we knew the word was extremely offensive. And yet uh, you might hear it discussed you know, rather than used as a slur. You'd hear people talk about the word. But as John mentioned, there was a case of a professor at Stanford Business School being disciplined for using a Chinese phrase that sounded like it. And there's a newer idea that words themselves have a really great power to, to do harm, that words can be violence. And I think that's uh, new in our culture. And so we have this idea that people can be harmed even by a similar sounding word. You know, words are words are weapons. And I think that's genuinely new to the culture. What makes that difference? As, as Lane says, you take a word which was offensive and then it takes on a, almost a different category. What is it that drives it? What comes first? Is it social change or is it that a group of people with a following in social media say, not this word, no longer? When these things start, often it's because of what society generally believes and that shapes what is treated in a certain way. These days, social media has it so that a, a relatively small group of often enlightened people can make a decision as to what's going to be considered you know, profane, so to say, and the rest of society goes along with it. But that's not completely unlike the way profanity was before. There were always plenty of people who wished you could talk more about excrement, who talked about the body all the time, and were always pushing the envelope as much as they possibly could, but just knew that people standing in authority weren't going to allow you to go too far with it in public. It's a similar kind of dynamic that you see, regardless of what the aim of the profanity is. Well, I think that is right. We've always had a, a relatively small, John calls them the elect, uh, that kind of decide what is in and out of the the bounds of the acceptable. And I think that 
what's new is the, is the way those elect kind of spread the word and social media really has become the way they're doing it these days. And I think what a lot of people feel is that it's happening very quickly. And so uh, what was okay sort of two years ago is now completely beyond the pale or it sometimes seems that way. And so people are being caught out and some people are becoming frustrated by that pace of change and feeling like they're almost being wrong footed because there were people out there who make it their goal to wrong foot you and to, to catch you out. But I wonder whether you're dialing down the offence caused by certain words when we talk about it. Yes, it's true that there are people out there to, who want their goat to be got. But at the same time, if we didn't accept that some language moves from the acceptable to the not acceptable, wouldn't we be also impeding a kind of social progress? The N-word and the fact that I think we've gone a little too far very recently is that the word has become not just a slur, not just profane, but a kind of totem, you know, where you can't even say something in Mandarin that sounds like it without a bunch of students leaving the room. And the reason that I say that that's not in advance is because I remember as somebody in his 50s, I remember in my 20s and 30s when you would never call somebody the N-word. But a white person could, in passing, utter it to refer to it, usually to criticize it. So, for example, if you say something like, well, having a football team called the Redskins is like there being a football team called the uh, the N-words, except what the person might say is the actual word. And that was considered perfectly okay. And I really do think that was perfectly okay. The new development where I can say that, but if Lane says it, he loses his job. I'm only kidding. I find that to have taken things further than I would imagine because I thought I like the way things were in 1995. But maybe I'm just falling out of steps with falling out of step with the times. Well, on the other hand, John, you have said recently that you think the dictionary definition of racism has to change. And in fact, to be opened up and expanded a little bit. So we we do agree that maybe our our very narrow definition of racism, someone who goes around in a clan hood and is viciously hateful towards black people is no longer expansive enough. Why did you say that? For one thing, the definition has changed and therefore the dictionary has to allow it Two, the definition. The usage of the word was going to change whether anybody liked it or not not. And it's done it in ways that make coherent sense. And so there's no point in standing against it. Now, I've written elsewhere, especially recently, it is a very awkward usage. It does make conversation difficult because it's not always the most intuitive usage for people who are just kind of walking around living their lives and they learn what we used to call prejudice was and they think it's racist. It's a tough one, but you can't stand against it. My feeling has always been that one is just going to be the way it is, although it's a tough one. And frankly, with the N-word, I don't think that I can stop anything. I think where we are is where it's going to stay. But sometimes I just feel that we black people are being made out to be a little more sensitive than most of us are. But, you know, it's nice for me to say that I'm just one person and, and life will go on. That qualifies as commentary more than anything else. So just for those listeners who aren't au fait with it, explain a little bit about how the definition of racism has expanded. What does it mean now that it didn't mean in 1990? Oh, well, the new definition, and I think this really starts to become common parlance in the late 60s, but we're getting a constant tutorial in it now, is that racism is that, for example, that black people are overrepresented in the prison population. That's evidence of systemic racism. So it's hard to pinpoint any one person who says they don't like black people, who's therefore putting black people in jail. But there's this aggregate effect where the idea is that black people are devalued in some way, somewhere along the line. And that creates 
that inequity that creates that disparity. And that is something we call racism. But there's something else that happens, isn't there, which is that there are stories or events that make the news that force attention and perhaps force some people to think about things or be confronted with an argument that goes broader. And I'm referring here to the murder of George Floyd last year. Now, for a lot of people, that really is a moment of reckoning with uh, racism. It's about a change in what we mean by racism and that sense that racism can be in practice, it can be casual, it can be structural, it can be lots of things at once. Do these moments matter to language? I think that if you could kind of take the temperature of America's understanding of language, that the very meaning of the word racism is now more controversial and thought about harder than it was before last spring. So systemic racism is an old term, but I think it used to be better known by more educated people and even then only a subset of them. That's no longer as true as it used to be. And so the very purchase of that word and its multifarious meanings upon the consciousness of the ordinary person is different now than it was just a year ago. And that's been impressive to watch. What do you think, Lane? I mean, is it, I mean, it's easy to say, yeah, this must have changed everything because lots of people would like it to change a lot or stand for the change of, of something that would really matter in America and beyond. Bit of liberal wishful thinking there, possibly. I think things are changing. I, it's uncomfortable in, in, in a lot of ways for a lot of people at how quickly we've been forced to confront things that have been around for a long time. Uh, the reality of black people's encounter with the police in America and how quickly and how often those can get violent is something that a lot of people were uh, able to just kind of overlook or not think about very much. And now we're getting it all the time. I think these things have been right under the surface and we've just been able to pretend they weren't there. So um, it's been a painful six months to a year dealing with all these things for all Americans, but some of these things had to happen. But I, I wonder whether it changes anything about the use of language specifically, as opposed to mentality, which is a bit harder to chart or measure. Going back a little bit to our earlier discussion, I think there's a lot of you can't say that kind of going on on social media. Uh, I, I detect more of it in the last year than I did a couple of years ago. And there's a nervousness and a bit of a spikiness out there that has come out of our racial reckoning in America. And I think um, everybody's a little bit on edge. That's not necessarily a bad thing for a time. I hope we we, we come out of that 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 nervous and sort of angry and and fearful period and, and can talk frankly. And John is very good on this subject about the, the needed solutions for black America. John is really focused a lot on the need for a community college, for uh, rehabilitation of offenders coming out of prison and so forth. And I think those discussions are where people of goodwill can really come together and make some progress rather than policing each other's right to use the N-word and these things like that. John, another case that I wanted to get your view on is the controversy surrounding the translations of the works of Amanda Gorman. Of course, she was the black poet who spoke so impressively at Joe Biden's inauguration. And following an outcry, Dutch and Catalan translators, both of whom were white, had to step back from translating her work. Isn't the whole point of translation to bring a piece of work from one culture to another? But do you need to share something profound like skin colour with the original author in order to say, well, yes, yeah, that, that's the, the translator who should be put onto this piece of work. 
that was a really tricky issue because I think most of us have the first thought that what's important is the quality of the translation and that to say that a middle-aged white man can't channel the poetry of a young black woman is essentialist, that it's pretending that there's something about being a young black woman that's absolutely unreachable to that middle-aged white man. And we all know that that doesn't quite make sense, but then we also have this ideology lately that there's something very specific about being a black American suffering from the oppression of being part of a systemically racist society. And we're told that we have to understand that. And it's natural to carry that over into the idea that there's something about the way Amanda Gorman writes that channels that sense of being part of a white supremacist society that only could be translated by, for example, a black Surinamese immigrant female under 30 living in Amsterdam. But then you can't help thinking, really, are those two people living like experiences, not to mention, you know, crossing languages, crossing an ocean, different colonial histories? Are they really the same thing? Then the other argument was, well, then also that 27-year-old black Surinamese spoken word poetry woman isn't getting as much employment as the bespectacled middle-aged white guy named something like Pete, spelled P-I-E-T, who gets to translate War and Peace, and you know he's already had a career. So is it a matter of giving people an opportunity? But frankly, that's what people were saying in the sort of second wave of that discussion. The original idea was that to translate Amanda Gorman, you have to be an Amanda Gorman of that society. That gets into all sorts of issues as to what translation is about, what personhood is about. You could do a whole symposium about that issue and not come to any kind of conclusion. Lane, do you know any other examples? And we must accept that the Black experience, the Black American experience is specific. But have you come across anything like this before? I know you read voraciously. We have some languages in common, Lane and I, and we've got a few different ones where there's been an argument about this should not be translated up by someone who is not somehow connected to the culture. It's hard to think of a, of, a, of a group within a larger group that would have the same experience, even an analogous experience to, to Black Americans in America. I mean, Catalonia, for example, hasn't even really had immigrants in any large number until sort of 20 years ago. There's been a big boom in immigration in Spain, but the whole thing about being a Black American is it's been this way for centuries. And for a recent immigrant to kind of translate from the immigrant experience, whether a Surinamese in Amsterdam or a uh, Venezuelan in Barcelona, they, they just couldn't tap into even the even a parallel experience, because it's quite different to be an immigrant than to be a group that's been in your country for hundreds of years and has been at the bottom of the pile for all of those hundreds of years. So I, I just find it, I find this whole thing very vexing because I really want Amanda Gorman to be read in Catalan. And I just don't know that anyone in Catalonia has had Amanda Gorman or a Black American's experience there. John, you were one of 150 or so signatories to a letter published in Harper's arguing for the value of freedom of speech. Two things. What's changed since you wrote the letter? And actually, a question in my mind at the time was really what did it mean by freedom of speech? And were people clear in their own minds that it maybe meant different things to different people? That was a yearish ago now. And when you asked me that, I realized that that was a particular socio-historical moment. So, I, you know, I didn't write it, but I was one of the people who they asked to sign it fairly early on. It didn't look at all controversial. I thought what I was signing and what I was signing was a statement that people should not be defenestrated 
for saying things that offend a certain contingent of what you might call the woke, who are hyper-woke. It's the sort of woke who I'm calling the elect, as Lane said, who feel that it's okay to hurt people in the name of woke ideology. It's not the woke. It's the woke who, who are mean, frankly. And what I was saying was that people should be able to express their views, even if people of that hard, hard left sentiment don't agree with them. What I didn't know then, and this wouldn't have stopped me, but I didn't know then how much the moment had changed. I would have known, say, a month later, that a group of those sorts of people were going to read that letter as self-satisfied, career-secure, quote-unquote white, you know, which would even include me in terms of the demographic, white people who don't like being criticized. That really threw me. I had no idea that it would be read that way. And it was clear that a critical mass of people saw it as somebody like me saying, how dare you criticize me? I've been around for a while. You're threatening my power. I now know that that's part of this critical race theory paradigm, where the idea is that only the, the, the white guy gets to speak. The rest of us lack the power. We don't have as much voice. And our views, our shared experience, our life experiences are not acknowledged. I get what those people meant. I get the criticism. I'm not sure they ever came to understand that people like me were not saying, how dare you criticize us? What we were saying, the issue is not whether we can be critiqued. It's whether you try to deprive us of our jobs or have us pilloried in the public square in some humiliating way because of what we said. But there's a new contingent who really feel that if you go against certain tenets, you should be drawn and quartered or defenestrated or stripped of your epaulets. That's new. Lane, that's a, a good example, isn't it, of something, as John says, although he says he would still have signed the letter and he has the view that he has on, on that question of something where language just seems to have become a battlefield. Is it a battlefield because ideas are just more fraught and contested? Or is it somehow that language rouses standing in for things that we were almost kind of distracting ourselves by objecting to words, defending words, defending free speech, attacking free speech. Which way round? It's, it's a good question. They've just made me think about it this way. You know, it, it, as long as we're talking about intellectuals and, and journalists and people who write for a living and people who spend too much time on social media, if we're talking about a battle of ideas and those ideas are being expressed in words, then the language kind of is the battlefield. So if I wall off some territory and, and say you can't come here, then it's like I've I've taken and captured and held that territory and, and can now defend it against you. And if I can control what words are said in the battle, then I, 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 I control more of, of what's going to happen and the outcome of it. So. In a way, yeah, the, the language itself is becoming kind of the, the battlefield of, of our time. And this isn't for everybody. This is kind of an upper, you know, upper middle class, educated classes, chattering classes, if you like, kind of thing. The, the real racial reckoning has to happen at the level of the police and, and, and young black men and, in America and places like that. But um, this is taking up a lot of our attention, those of us who write for a living, because words are our job. John, you've argued for free speech. You've written a book celebrating awful words. You're generally a pretty live and let live type. I get that impression. But are there uses of language that make your blood boil or grammatical bugbears or things that just drive you crazier than you wish they did? Yes, there there is. And it's the way people use just in the wrong order. And this has nothing to do with profanity. You can't just walk in there and start yelling. But the way it's put, at least in my world, is you just can't walk out there and start yelling, which to me, that's not 
what it means. You just can't walk in there and start yelling means you only can't walk in there as opposed to other things. But if you mean, if you mean you can't just walk in there, what that's supposed to mean is as if you can just sashay in there, you can't just do that. But the way it's put here is you just can't do that. That drives me insane. It's like a book out of place on the shelf, but nobody cares about how I feel. And I just have to join a support group because it's not going to change. I think you might find in terms of style book discussions at The Economist, I always find my cherished colleague Lane to be on the more liberal wing of this. He sits in his metaphorical armchair and says, language changes, what are you all so hung up about? But Lane, given if I'm interpreting you correctly, and you've also written written your own books that deal with this, are there still things that drive you crackers? I have to say, I'm a traditionalist on literally, and I know that there's good pedigree for figurative literally. Nabokov and James Joyce and other people have used it in the way that, that sort of purists decry. But the reason I like a good literal literally is because when it hits, there's nothing better. I have a high hamstring problem and it is a literal pain in the ass and you just can't have that kind of fun if you if literally is just thrown around all the time because when you get to use that literal uh it's so pleasing and to see it sort of just just run down by overuse uh makes me sad i guess no less less blood boiling but i like keeping it in that place he's literally furious john mcquarter and lane green thank you very much for joining us Literally. Thank you, Anne. Thanks very much, Anne. What is your grammatical or syntactical bugbear? I'm no fan of me and someone, as in me and Alicia brought you this show. No, no, we didn't. Alicia and I did. Write to us in your perfectly phrased sentences, as so often, at radio at economist.com. Or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And if you'd like to get to grips with The Economist's wonderful way with words, then do become a subscriber today and you'll have access to all of them. For our best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producers were Pete Norton and Alicia Burrell. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.